one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody and welcome to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 529 for the week of Monday, September 16th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Oh, another busy week, Sawyer. Can't wait to dig in. Oh, me too. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. And hello from all points south. <laughs> you got the north and the south all on the east. Ready to broadcast this west and east and around the world, and maybe that'll make sense to somebody. But I think what does make sense is getting right into the stories, and let's start things off with... We're actually not going to start off with the biggest news, but with the more recent of the news stories. And that is the Soyuz spacecraft returned from the International Space Station, carrying back three crew members after 166 days in space. The Soyuz TMA-08M safely landed at 10.58 p.m. Eastern Time in the hills of Kazakhstan. Returned from that is Commander Pavel Vinogradov, Flight Engineer Alexander Masurkin, and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy after their stay aboard the International Space Station. They were all back, they were all fine, and it looked like a perfect landing minus landing on its side. But... It actually wasn't. It turns out that there was a pretty major problem with the Soyuz spacecraft, and as it was put, they were quote-unquote flying blind. That's because their computers inside their screens, inside the Soyuz that was giving them information, was not giving them the correct information. The spacecraft computers and guidance systems were working fine, but it was telling them all the wrong information, so they turned off all their monitors and were essentially flying blind. They landed safely, and as they were saying, uh, they were given height and measurements from the ground read off to them, and then they were counting out major milestones, such as when they were actually going to be landing. It's kind of scary. So, sorry, let me get this straight. They didn't have any telemetry coming down at all whatsoever. Am I I reading this right? Uh, From what I read, and uh, let me just pull up the exact article so I can get it correct. I looked at a couple different articles, but this is one from NewsDaily.com. It says, uh, there's a quote from Vinogradov that says, There were problems. For some reason, after the undocking, all our parameters disappeared. Essentially, after the undocking, we flew blind. End quote. So, he said the rescue teams were able to radio to the crew when they were, you know, 300 meters, 100 meters above the ground. And uh, as he then said, quote, I managed to count eight seconds and we touched down very softly. Basically, uh, their screens inside the spacecraft were useless. 
Oh, boy. Well, okay. Um, once again, uh, I, I hate to say this, but uh, we've, got, <laughs> we've got another problem going on with Soyuz. And this is, well, it's, it's a little disconcerting. I mean, just picture yourself if you were flying down yourself and you had absolutely nothing to tell you how fast you were going and so on. Just picture, picture the, the, the dashboard light, say, on your car going blank all of a sudden. Or, you know, just nothing working on the dash. But you still had, you, you still had an engine. You still had the, the transmission. You could kind of sort of control how fast you're going, but you had no idea how fast you were going. Um, I mean, I don't know. This, this is, I hate to hit the panic button here, but again, I'm sort of reminded back in it. And Sawyer, you, uh, Mark Sawyer, you guys, you remember this commentary I made back, oh, when was it? Um, just after uh, the Atlantis touchdown, when we heard all about the era of reliability. I mean, Atlantis's APUs weren't even cold yet, and on the Roscosmos website, they were tidy, touting the era of reliability, the era of Soyuz. Well, I guess not, huh? Um, Russia's had their share of problems, too, uh, in their space program. I, I, and we could probably do an entire program on, on, on those. Most, most recently, the, uh, the Proton, uh, Proton M fiasco, which I believe uh, the launch of a, of a Proton was pushed back, too, to, to kind of sort of make sure that all the I's are dotted and and T's were crossed. But, uh, again, this kind of makes me a little nervous. I mean, we are kind of entrusting these folks to get our crews up and down safely. Right now, Russia is the only country in the um, ISS partnership that could go ahead and send crew to the International Space Station. And if Soyuz goes down, boys and girls, I hate to say this, we're we're basically out of luck. So I'm guessing that um, there's going to be an inquiry somewhere along the line, and we're going to find out what exactly occurred, and we'll go off and we'll fix it. But, you know, again, um, I'm I'm a little troubled. I mean, stuff has happened on board shuttle, too, and... Um, you know, during reentry and so on, but but I, you know, nothing like like going blind, for instance, and coming down blind, and uh, that's that's kind of scary, especially if you're you're kind of relying on these instruments to kind of sort of tell you where you're at and what what's going on. Um, to comment uh, on, if I recall, I was I was watching the uh, the coverage on uh, on the landing. And if I recall exactly, somebody actually out there said, and I think it might have been NASA PAO, I'm not sure, uh, that said actually coming down on your side is sort of favorable. <laughs> or at least this is the way the, the Russians kind of prefer it because it's easier to extract the crew from uh, the descent state, from the descent module, and than it would be if the vehicle kind of sort of landed upright. You can go ahead, open the thing, thing up, not use a ladder or anything like that. You can extract the crew a lot easier when, when the thing lands on its side. So, um, also too, I can't picture something like that landing quote softly. I mean, you're 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 you've got an impact 
with the ground. <laughs> I, I I kind of kind of chuckled a little bit when you uh, talked about uh, Pavel Vinogradov talking about landing softly. Uh, I think f- uh, some of our astronauts have described a landing in a in a Soyuz as a as a car wreck followed by a bus wreck. Um, or something along those lines. Yeah, I've heard it described as getting into a car crash at forty miles an hour. Yeah, I mean it's it, it it's like it's an ouch compared to what what shuttle was. So, um, you know, it's I kind of had to laugh at that. But yeah, again, the, to, just to finish the point, it's a lot easier to go ahead and extract the crew when the descent stayed when the descent module kind of lands like that so when when we're talking about the the descent stage it's it's really a tiny little thing and and it's um not exactly the most spacious vehicle in the world either so uh i guess too uh, we, and we guys we talked about this a little bit ourselves uh the the ride up very fast and a very fast ride down i've kind of you know the less time i spend in that vehicle personally the more safer i feel uh, I, I'm not degrading it at all. It's done a good job. It's a venerable vehicle. It's been around since the '60s. It's had some refits here and there, but I think it's time to to kind of move on. And I'm hoping that our our commercial partners that we have here in the United States can get their you know their vehicles up and running fast, and you know knock on knock on wood that uh, that Congress goes ahead and funds this thing rather rapidly. Uh, I hope Congress was also watching about that blackout that occurred. Uh, and maybe it's a strong signal to them to go ahead and, and, and kind of sort of get aggressive with funding the commercial crew program properly. And hopefully, because I mean, this is uh, kind of a big deal. You were mentioning that it happened with shuttle before, but here's the difference. Then if anything happened with shuttle and it needed to be grounded to be fixed, we could still get people to the space station. Now that isn't an option. So I think what normally would have been just a minor problem that's looked at and eventually fixed while, you know, let's say they wait a flight and put more people on shuttle is a bigger problem when there is no other option. Yeah, agreed, Sora. This is a real big deal. And hopefully they'll go ahead, fix it, figure out what went wrong, and and we'll be able to move forward from that point. Exactly. I, I sure hope so. And um, I did forget to mention that the landing did occur this past Tuesday, which was September 10th. And the next Soyuz spacecraft is set to launch at the end of September, the Soyuz TMA-10M, which will bring up Oleg Kotov, Sergei Ryazensky, and Mike Hopkins to the space station to join Commander Fyodor Yurchenkin, Luka Parmitano, and Karen Nyberg. To make up the Expedition Thirty Seven crew. Bravo with the name Sawyer. <laughs> oh boy, thank you. <laughs> and I, I do apologize if I butchered any of those because I can bet I've butchered at least one. Alrighty then. So that was the Soyuz landing and an upcoming launch. And speaking of upcoming launches, Gene. Yeah, boy, do we have one here. Uh, the uh, uh, Orbital Sciences uh, Antares is uh, going to go ahead and take off on uh, September 18th. The reason why is twofold. One, uh, there were a little, there was some weather getting uh, uh, Antares out to the uh, to the pad, and that kind of sort of delayed um, its actual rollout to uh, uh, to the uh, the launch pad. And secondly, I believe a technical issue of some sort had cropped up. 
and they wanted to go ahead and make sure all their I's are dotted and all their T's are crossed and uh, that uh, everything was all good for launch. But right now, launch is set for uh, Thursday, September 18th. Launch is to occur. And forgive me, folks, I know I, I should have prepared myself and converted this to GMT. I did not. So, you know, bad. So I'm going to be a nasty bad American and, and, and keep it at uh, Eastern Daylight Time. But launch is scheduled between 10.50 and uh, 11.05 a.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time from uh, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport at Wallops Island, Virginia. Uh, the purpose of this particular flight, it does not, now, uh, this particular Antares does not have what the last one had on board, which was simply a, a Cygnus simulant. This one has the genuine article on board. And uh, this will be essentially um, the COTS demo flight for, for the Cygnus spacecraft. I believe the, this particular vehicle is carrying about 13, uh, was it uh, 1,300 pounds of cargo and clothing, some goodies. I've, I've heard something about chocolates being on board and all this other stuff. But the whole idea really is to see if Cygnus can perform the way it should perform, which is can it go ahead and make all the maneuvers it needs to to go ahead and come into proximity to the International Space Station so uh, it can be... You know, essentially plucked out of the sky and brought to uh, uh, on to be and birthed to the uh, International Space Station, essentially the same way that Dragon was. Uh, big difference between Cygnus and Dragon is that Cygnus is does not give you down mass, uh, but I think it's a it's it's a little bigger than uh, than Dragon and can hold a little bit more because I think Cygnus is also a dedicated cargo vehicle, whereas Dragon is essentially designed also for crew. Um, so that that, that kind of gives you some flexibility uh, in, in some areas, but again, Dragon also gives you a lot of flexibility there too. These two vehicles have got to work, though, for the future of the International Space Station, period. And a lot's riding on, on this one. Um, because Sawyer, you you had mentioned you know during our our uh, our pre-show conference here that uh, SpaceX also had a test firing uh, over uh, uh, this past week, did it not? Exactly. Um, this past Thursday, I believe they did a test of the Falcon Nine version one point one out in California. Yeah, that that was um, it's it was scheduled to to fly on the fifteenth. But I think something occurred during that test fire that uh, they that the folks didn't like. In fact, uh, Elon Musk posted a a tweet out on Twitter saying that saying that that uh, you know, test firing was complete. But there was some things they didn't like, and there's probably going to be a delay. There's no real explanation of what that was, but uh, uh, that's going to be delayed for a little bit. But uh, one of the things that um, and I think we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, Mike Sefferdini was really, really kind of animate because he was saying that he would like to start seeing regular flights to the International Space Station for cargo. And uh, uh, SpaceX, I know, has got their hands full right now. They've got the, uh, I just said the uh, the testing of uh, of uh, the new uh, the Falcon 9, the new Falcon Nine. This Falcon Nine has got. Um, 
some attributes to it that uh, uh, I believe uh, give it some you know, sort of grasshopper-esque uh, feel to it. If Go you ahead, want, I can tell you exactly what it is. Um, it has, uh, to help out with all the new payloads coming up, it has more powerful engines, stretched fuel tanks, and a new 17-foot diameter or 5 or so meter payload fairing. So, Yeah, that's something that they didn't have in the past is the payload fairing. And in order to go ahead and make sure that they can, they can continue to be uh, uh, carry more commercial uh, satellites and so on, uh, they've got to test this payload fairing. And that is one of the, the, the aspects of this particular flight that they're going to do from Vandenberg Air Force Base. So we'll wait what, uh, what SpaceX has, to, has up its, its sleeve. Uh, I don't know when that launch is going to be rescheduled. Um, one of the things that kind of, and, and again, I, I hate sounding like I'm bashing SpaceX, but um, I, I think, too, I know this is the brave new world of social media and all that, but I think, too, you can't live and die by the boss's tweets. Uh, and and a little bit more information has got to come out from them as far as what's happening, what's going on, and so on. It's good that Elon Musk is doing that, by the way. I'm not going to knock him for doing that, saying that there is an issue. We got to take a look at it. Great, you know, thanks for thanks for doing that. But their their uh, their public relations apparatus or their uh, their their version of PAO has got to go ahead and kind of sort of step up to the plate a little bit and kind of expound on on what's going on uh, I, I, that's one of my my big complaints about uh about spacex and and they've got to be a little bit a bit more proactive in that area um to just flip it around to orbital uh the other cargo provider my experience with them has been uh they were totally transparent if they didn't have an answer somebody would get on a uh on a, uh, a laptop and I'd have an answer to my question in about a couple hours or uh, uh, one of the, the PAO folks would tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, I got something for you. And, you know, they were very, very up forward, very, very transparent. So uh, I'm sure there'll be more of the same at this particular launch as well. But uh, again, this, I can't emphasize it enough, this is absolutely critical for the future of the International Space Station. This has got to work. And uh, we've got to see more regular f- cargo flights going up there. And I think that's what M- Mike Safardini is saying. I mean, he, he's, got a, he's got cargo to move. He's got, a, he's got, he's got a, a, a facilities to support. And he's got six people. Well, right now there's three, but eventually there'll be six more. There'll be six uh, people to support on, on board that, uh, that orbiting facility. So uh, uh, this is really a linchpin here. So this this cargo stuff has got to work. And from what I understand, if this works, because SpaceX is kind of having some issues with Falcon 9 right now and so on, if this particular launch goes flawlessly, there's a possibility that um, Orbital could be launching again in December. And uh, this would be its full-up first cargo delivery mission so looking forward to uh, uh, December if everything goes well on the 18th so we'll, we'll just have to see um, I know the, the International Space Station crew uh, specifically Karen Nyberg and um, Luca Pomertano uh, this is 
also from the NASA website have been sort of practicing their whatever they need to rehearse to to grab um, the Cygnus from the sky here and bring it on board. Uh, there is one really cool picture right now on the NASA website. I'm hoping it's still around when 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 we go to record. If not. I have to apologize. I'll have to grab it, and 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 Sawyer, you'll you know if you go to the NASA website now and grab it, and uh, hopefully we can get it up on the site. It has uh, a sign, and I didn't see this when I was over there, so this has got to be something new. Um, I was just about to mention this. I'm so glad yeah, you're bringing it up. Yeah, I, this this wasn't there when I, I was there in April, and you know, gosh darn it, it's actually a little sign that looks like a. Um, you know, a regular traffic sign that you would see out on a turnpike or something like that. It says International Space Station on ramp, and it's pointing to uh, Pad Zero A with uh, with the Antares vehicle on on the launch pad. So um, this is this is kind of cool. I had to go ahead and laugh at that and go, yeah, that, that that's kind of neat. So um, yeah, Sawyer, if you can if you could do us a big favor and grab that and post it on the website, I'd appreciate it. But which, uh, by the way, you can't see the second half. There's another sign right next to it that says "Moon Ahead." Oh, I like that one. <laughs> I have the picture, and it will be on our website. This is from from the NASA Flickr gallery. So, wishing the best of luck to Orbital. Alrighty then, so that brings us to the end of round number one, and now we move on to round number two. And uh, for this one, well, this is kind of the big news of last week. Uh, In case you didn't hear, after 36 years and 12 billion miles, the Voyager 1 spacecraft has officially entered interstellar space. Now, this was the announcement that was made this past week. It turns out that the actual transition occurred back in August of last year. However, the instrument that would have been able to tell them it kind of quit back in 1980. However, they were able to use some indirect methods, and using their results, they were able to figure out that Voyager 1 did enter interstellar space. And this is the first spacecraft ever to do so. Yeah, I saw the headlines uh, over the, the the week for for that, and everybody was saying, "Oh, Voyager's left the solar system. Voyager's left." Not quite there, Sparky. It means it has left the sun's influence. Okay, we still have the Oort cloud to deal with, and we're not going to be there for another. Let me see. Oh, three hundred years. So we haven't really left the solar system per se. But uh, we have definitely left uh, the star- left uh, our sun's influence on this one. Uh, to give you just a little bit of perspective as far as Voyager itself and what was going on when it left Earth. Now, Voyager 1 took off after Voyager 2. Voyager 1, uh, I believe, was launched, uh, I believe it was September 4th. 5th of 1977 while Voyager 2 was launched on August 20th of 1977 to give you an idea of what was going on um, Sawyer this might be something near and dear to your heart Uh, on August 12th of 1977 a a space shuttle named Enterprise went ahead and made its first free flight test in the back of a Boeing 747 Um, 
we were mourning the death of Elvis Presley on August 16th of 77. Um, the Tandy Corporation, you know, Radio Shack, they announced something called the TRS-80 Computer also in August of 77. Now, if anybody, anybody remembers what those were, these were things about the size of an old television. And uh, uh, this was like one of the first home computers running around. So uh, another, another first on September 3rd, the Commodore Pet was sold. So another, another computer story. And this kind of sort of drives home the point, too, that, that Voyager compared to today is sort of a, you know, a really primitive vehicle. I think it's got – and somebody's going to have to check me on this – I think I've heard something like the, the computer on board has got so, something similar to like 12K of memory. So you have to be really, really hair-splittingly exact when you go ahead and send instructions to that particular spacecraft. You can't really afford to what what some people today would call, you can't afford to write sloppy code. But today you've got oodles of memory and oodles of, of uh of uh, storage space, whereas on Voyager, you didn't have that convenience. So that, that's one of the things to go ahead and take a look at. Uh, but, but Sawyer, again, how did they go ahead and figure this one out? There's a, there's a neat chart on the NASA website that sort of shows the demarcation line, and uh, I believe we're going to get that up on, on the website, too, for this particular episode. But uh, it kind of shows where we, how they they managed to figure this out. And one of the and sorry, you also alluded to um, one of the instruments on board Voyager, this, this plasma detect, detection device. Man, it's been out since since uh, its planetary uh, encounters with, uh, with, ver- with the various worlds in our solar system since about 1980. So, uh, but but there's a neat story on the on the NASA website that goes ahead and shows where there's a neat graphic on the NASA website that shows where that demarcation line was. So because we had talked about this a couple of times on the program too, on how essentially you know Voyager was going through what was being characterized as the you know the interstellar doldrums, if you were, if you will. And we weren't exactly too sure where that demarcation line was. And uh, apparently we have figured that one out. Yeah, and, and on the NASA website, there's this interesting little graphic that showed where that demarcation line was and why they had a such a hard time trying to find it. Uh, there was a uh, what really really led led uh, led to all this was a was a study that was done, I believe, at uh, uh, the University of Iowa in Iowa City, um, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Don. Uh, Don Gurnett, I might be pronouncing his uh, his name wrong, and I do apologize for that. But he was the one who kind of led the study and figured out uh, exactly where this, uh, you know, this quote solar bubble, if you were, well, if you will, was, and uh, presented that data uh, to um, to JPL, and JPL kind of really, really. Well, they they took it to task. They really, really kind of sort of, uh, kind of sort of, you know, put it through the ringer to make sure that it was absolutely correct, and thus the reason why it took so long to say yes, Voyager has definitely left the sun's influence. So they wanted to be ultra sure about it, and uh, but it's it, it's really a, a momentous thing. Um, 
knowing that a piece of humanity is somewhere now really, really outside the influence of our own star. And uh, that, is, that, that, is, that is something, <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, but I get kind of awestruck when I think about it. Oh, without a doubt. Plus, there's that piece of humanity on it with the golden record with all the recordings right. and uh, information in that. And it, it's amazing, especially since uh, we talk a lot about, you know, the little rovers that could, the MERS, Spirit and Opportunity, how they were only supposed to last 90 days and have been still going all these years. We're talking about a spacecraft here that was supposed to last five years. And it was launched in 1977. And keep in mind, it's 2013. It's still going, and it has a battery that's capable of going until 2020. That's right. And uh, you know, every time I think about this, I, I still remember uh, Dr. Carl Sagan talking about what was then called Mariner Jupiter Saturn. And that was the original name of this particular mission. And uh, anything beyond uh, Jupiter Saturn um, was gravy. And these vehicles, they've gone to pretty much every world in the outer solar system, uh, save Pluto. And, uh, well, you know, Pluto being demoted now to whatever they've demoted it to, uh, we will have a, another vehicle kind of sort of going out there. That's New Horizons. I believe that's going to be in the vicinity of around 2015. And that is going to be a quick flyby, the same thing that uh, Voyager was, but to the outer solar system. But uh, um, these two spacecraft have seen just about every world in, in, in the outer solar system and have brought their treasures uh, back home to us. And uh, um, if you want to talk about one of the great achievements of the, uh, of the 20th century, there it is. And I believe now Voyagers essentially span, dare I say, two centuries, 20, the 20th and the 21st. And uh, the, they've got enough battery power, as you pointed out, Sawyer, to go ahead and keep this vehicle running. And uh, again, I'll point out, too, there's another very, very cool photograph uh, on the NASA website. Uh, I keep on coming back to this. It actually shows the halo of uh, the Voyager's transmissions coming back to Earth. Um, I'll just pull it up here very very quickly. But they're calling this particular photograph Pale Blue Dot Mark II. And it's not the Earth. It's Voyager 1 kind of looking back at us. And uh, what you're seeing is um it's all this is is just this halo this blue blue halo that's sitting out there and essentially voyager 1 I'll read the caption flat out voyager 1 the most distant human object ever made has been spotted from earth by the national radio Astron- radio astronomy observatory by its by its you know very long baseline array um which kind of ekes out um a lot of it's essentially a huge radio telescope, and it sent back a, a photograph of what the radio signals look like from Voyager, and all it is is just this blue, looks like this huge blue halo come, looking back at you. But it's amazing, and that gives that gives me goosebumps when I think of where that where that vehicle is right now. Wow! 
Exactly. Humanity has come a long way. And keep in mind, this was the humanity of the late 1970s. Consider where we are today. We are still humanity, but boy, have we evolved. Alrighty then. So, we continue along now to Gene, and we go back to commercial space. Yeah, sort of, Sawyer. Um, we talked a, a little bit about this issue, uh, I guess, one of our previous programs, but it looks like it, the uh, the fight's heating up, as it will, for control of Launchpad 39A, uh, which is essentially a national historic site. But this is a, a facility that NASA really wanted to get off of its books uh, before October 1st. And uh, there are two companies vying for control of this particular facility. Uh, NASA would like to lease it out to someone that might be interested in operating the launch pad for any type of commercial purpose. And um, two uh, entities have emerged to try to go ahead and, and sort of take control of the – or not exactly take control, but to lease out uh, – the launch pad too. One of them is SpaceX and the other company is Blue Origin. Now both of them have very interesting aspects to what they want to do. SpaceX if it's le- if 39A is leased out to them wants to go ahead and use the pad for their own purposes and their own facility. My bet is probably to launch Falcon Heavy uh, and uh, uh, to operate uh, that particular vehicle from uh, from uh, the Space Coast. The other side of the coin is Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin that wants also the right to uh, wants to win the, the the right to lease out the pad. Um, well, their uh, business model is that they would they would go ahead and open the pad up to any commercial provider that would want to go ahead and use it. Uh, I'm guessing, too, that if you've got your own people that want to go ahead and, and, and support your launch, they'll allow you to do that. Or if you want to use their people, uh, you could do that, too. Of course, there'll probably be more charges in, involved and all that. That's just, just a wild guess, but I, I'm guessing that, that that's what they're after. Uh, well, Apparently, Blue Origin last week, according to an article by Dan Leone in uh, in Space News in, in the in the periodical Space News, um, kind of sort of took this little spat between themselves and uh, and SpaceX a little bit further. Uh, apparently, on September third, Blue Origin filed a protest with the U.S. government's. Uh, government Accountability Office, alleging that, quote, and I'll quote directly from the article here, um, there is a problem with NASA's solicitation that needs to be addressed, according to uh, Ralph White, who is the uh, GAO's Managing Associate General Counsel for Procurement Law. Um, and now it looks like the GAO is going to be forced to uh, take a look at this and uh, they're not going to rule on this particular issue until December 12th. Now, that means that NASA is going to retain control of Pad 39A past the October 1st fiscal deadline. So taxpayers will still be footing the bill to keep uh, keep the, uh, the launch pad in uh, what they're euphemistically calling a shuttle-ready state. 
we don't really know the the whole basis of the complaint. Um, but these two companies have sort of just been kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of you know bumping heads, if you will, uh, for months over this thing. And uh, it's it's <laughs> this is going to be far from settled. Uh, apparently, Blue Origin filed its protest with at least five U.S. senators, according to the article here. Um, and I'm not exactly too sure what how this is all going to play out. Um, now, I believe, according to the article, uh, uh, it is um, it cost about 1.2 million dollars. An annual maintenance uh, for Pad 39A, and NASA saying it no longer needs Pad 39A. That they intend to operate solely with Pad 39B, um, which has been completely, you know, <laughs> flattened and and prepared for uh, for its per- for other uh, uses, including use with the space launch system. Um, I think it's from a personal standpoint. It's kind of tragic that we are not going to be launching vehicles to a point where we don't need two launch pads. Uh, I've found uh, digging around, um, and I believe somebody also kind of posted this uh, particular map up on Facebook. The original plans for the Kennedy Space Center included. Not just 39A and 39B, but there was a 39C and D in it, thinking that we were going to have much, you know, a, a much quicker and a much uh, more active uh, launch site around that area. And that is just not to be. In fact, I still remember, too, when, Mark, when you and I were down there uh, for um, uh, the launch of the, the Mark, uh, the, uh, for Curiosity, uh, for, for that launch, um, I remember asking about Pad 39A, and um, nobody could really, really give me a straight answer as, back then as far as what was happening with it. And now we kind of sort of know what's going on. Um, who, who's going to win this battle? Who knows? But it's going to be interesting to see what company does uh, prevail in this, because uh, I think the ramifications are are kind of kind of interesting here too. The other thing, the other argument too, is how much is that area really really worth? What is what is the true worth of Pad Thirty Nine A? Because a lot of these other smaller outfits, like I believe Space Florida, and uh, again I'll bring it back to Wallops Island, the Mid Atlantic Regional Spaceport. They're saying too, really what is the worth of this particular asset and uh, is the lease agreement going to be at a fair market value that will reflect the true um, <laughs> that will essentially reflect the true uh, uh, worth of this asset um, or is the the lease going to be at a cut rate because if it is at a cut rate, they don't feel that that they could compete with something like that. That that how could Space Florida go ahead and compete with something like Pad Thirty Nine A, for instance, or how could Wallops go ahead and compete with something like Pad Thirty Nine A? So, you know, who, who 
where this is going to lead, who knows? But I'm going to keep an eye on this and and see what happens. Now, I do know that uh, just today um, there were two uh, letters, and uh, I thank NASA Watch for going ahead and posting this. There were two letters. One was sent uh, uh, from the uh, the House of Repre- Representatives, uh, basically saying, you know, commending NASA on what they've done done so far they're trying to go ahead and relaunch essentially the commercial space industry here in, in the United States which has essentially been you know kind of in the doldrums of, until very recently um, according it's been kind of what 20 years almost where you know it's just been kind of sort of flat but now look at it it's become sort of a hotbed of activity and the the note basically, says, um, quote, you know, in particular, we commend NASA for undertaking an open and competitive process regarding launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, and it goes on to say uh, that uh, you know, NASA's inspector general has identified uh, 39A as, if you can believe it, excess infrastructure uh, with no future mission-related uses for this for the facility, that kind of just sort of scares me a little bit too. But this again was not—we just don't have a need for this facility. I'm going to throw it out to you guys and and kind of sort of you know allow you to kick that around for a little bit, let that set in, and and uh, and 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 you know. Just offer comment as far as where we're at right now with spaceflight, and and is it a sad commentary that we can't even support two launch pads anymore, or is it just saying, look, the SLS is only going to have a flight rate of every four years. This is all we can do, and we'd rather go ahead and have somebody else operate this facility and 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 use it to its full ability rather than to see it you know, basically become some sort of tourist attraction. I'll throw that out to the floor. I don't know. I mean, I actually have a Life magazine from 1964, which on it, it has a picture of what the Kennedy Space Center was supposed to look like with all the Saturn V launch pads, and it was more than just A, B, C, and D we're talking here. We're talking a whole slew of different launch pads for different space vehicles, and basically a lot grander version of what Kennedy looks like today. Much grander, in fact. So, I mean, there were plans for big things, but obviously a lot of these plans are too grand, and then budget becomes an issue, and they have to downsize. I think that's kind of what's happening here, is that, you know, they had two launch pads, and now they're downsizing. The fact that they're actually trying to, you know, make money off of the one of them and let other people use it in private companies is good as is, but... You know, uh, this is the thing. They had it up for bid. It was going to be that one company was going to get 39A, and one company is going to get 39A, no matter who's filing a lawsuit or who's complaining or what. You know, NASA eventually will need a pad, so they get their choice. They want 39B, they'll use it. And whoever gets 39A gets it. Uh, this this is an interesting dilemma and one I honestly never thought we'd be having, so... Uh, send us your thoughts on this, too. You know, you can always email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, tweet it to us at TalkingSpace, or post it on our wall at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. Really interested in hearing your thoughts on this one. Alrighty then, so now we continue on to round three, and I'm going to be sticking here with ways of getting into space. I wouldn't necessarily say 
commercial, but I would say cheaper. And that is Japan's Epsilon rocket successfully launched on its first flight from the Uchinora Space Center at 1 a.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Japanese Time, or 5 GMT this past Saturday, which was Saturday, September 14th. The flight of the rocket looked pretty good. It's a relatively tiny rocket. It's a solid rocket motor, and it launched well and carried up the Sprint A. So it, it's this is opening up a new age. It's a new launch vehicle. Um, so, now, now, sorry, Sprint A is what? Uh, I know it's a it's a uh, observatory of some sort. Sprint A is the spectroscopic planet observatory for recognition of interaction of atmosphere. If we like acronyms here. Okay. Yeah, they, uh, apparently JAXA loves acronyms as, as much as we do. Uh, but yeah, indeed, this is another. Uh, uh, another uh, uh, tool in the in the toolbox, if you were, if you will, Epsilon. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, but the neat part about the Epsilon booster, and I, I'm I'm trying to remember again. I wish I could remember what art, what uh, um, what uh, uh, news service I saw this out of. So I remember reading it. Uh, somebody had said, "Is is you could go ahead and operate this this vehicle, or at least you know monitor it and monitor its health." From a you know on on a single laptop in a in a in a in a Starbucks somewhere, uh, that's how um, essentially this thing has been sort of downgraded. We've gone through, uh, and I don't want to say downgraded in, in in a in a bad sense. I think it's 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 good in that you can inexpensively operate a a, a launch vehicle. And I I look back and and Sawyer again. I'll I'll. I'll Pull out my my Apollo books and so on. You take a look at the the you know the firing room for uh, for the Saturn V. I mean, I'm not going to compare something as simple as a as a um, solid rocket motor uh, to launching the Saturn V. Um, but if you take a look at that, it took you know a whole room of people to go ahead and, and monitor that particular spacecraft's health and make sure that. Everything was all good, and and it was ready to fly, and so on. And as much as I hate to say this, if you can kind of sort of whittle that down to like maybe a, a room of a handful of people, just to make sure that the spacecraft is in in, in good health and and all that, and it's going to operate properly once it gets out there. Uh, I mean, that that's a big deal. I mean, that's a cost savings. Number one, it's a cost savings not only to you because you've got to go ahead and employ all these folks and and so on, um, but it's uh, it's also a, a sort of a, a cost savings for your client that's potentially looking at you to go ahead and get a satellite launched into low Earth orbit or beyond. So Epsilon, I think, is a step in the right direction, as is um, <laughs> as is Antares, and as is uh, uh, the SpaceX Dragon. I mean, Sawyer, you were over at the the uh, the, the SpaceX Launch Control Center, and and it uh, kind of reminded you know, some of the photographs you brought back. Kind of reminded me of a land party, but that's essentially what we're we're going to, and, and it's all about trying to reduce cost. And trying to go ahead and make spaceflight accessible, and I think that's the whole point of this whole thing. Where you've got 
orbital. You've got SpaceX. Now you've got 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 uh, got Epsilon. That and and uh, hopefully, with fingers crossed, and uh, you know, with, with with breath held, we're going to go ahead and make sure that the space continues to be affordable. I mean, talk about affordability. Basically, we're talking about the cost of this rocket being about thirty-eight million dollars. That's it. So this is amazingly cheap. It's amazingly lightweight, amazingly easy to control. Like you were saying, it can be controlled by a laptop. <laughs> you can just plug into the rocket's control network with a laptop computer. Yeah, that, that's also kind of, if you look at it from a security standpoint, it's a little <laughs> scary, too. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's a little it's a little frightening, but, you know, sorry, you brought up a pretty good point. I mean, that, that's the whole whole thing. Exactly. But the nice thing is there's another rocket in the playing field, and the more rockets there are, the better chance there is of launching more satellites and more success. Exactly. But, you know, more competition out there, the better. All right, now to finish things off, we are going to go back to where we started, and that is with the International Space Station and some interesting comments. Gene? Yeah, over the weekend, uh, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post by a gentleman by the name of Joel Archenbach. I'm I'm probably, this might be more your last name night in my opinion here because that's all I've been doing here lately um, and uh, oddly enough I, I flipped through the article first uh, when I was having breakfast I kind of sort of you know sort of scan things and look at Google and try to find some interesting stories so I can share with with you folks and I, I, I stumbled this across this thing on um, on Sunday morning and I'm, I'm reading it and I'm like I, I thought the author completely and totally missed the point um, and really didn't understand what the ISS was really, really supposed to be all about. And uh, oddly enough, I had a very interesting partner in, in this one, one uh, a gentleman I, I don't normally agree with all the time. But um, in this case, he was absolutely correct. And uh, that was uh, with uh, Mr. Keith Cowling over at uh, over at NASA Watch. I, I kind of looked at this and and our thought processes, oddly enough, and and I stood aghast, were almost the same on this. Um, in fact, he he almost highlighted the same passage that I was I was thinking about flat out. Um, he he says, "quote." Uh, and I'll, I'll I'll read the passage here. So and and we're we're talking about about the space the space station's lifetime, and we we've kind of sort of kicked that around here a little bit tonight. Uh, there there we have to go ahead and make a decision here whether whether or not to go ahead and continue to operate space station past 2020. And it's not just going to be NASA making that decision; it's going to be the rest of the international partners as well. Um, that decision may have to be reached quite soon. And the reason for that is, uh, well, just like if you own a home, say, you sort of understand that you have to do maintenance on the home. Things kind of wear out. You know, your, your, your furnace wears out, your, your, your hot water heater wears out, um, you know, your vinyl siding wears out. You might want to go ahead and replace that, or you're just tired of looking at it, or it's just getting too beat up. Um, might have to replace gutters or 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 whatever. Um, 
so it is with the International Space Station. In fact, I believe we talked about this a few weeks back where uh, Bill Gerstenmeier said that, uh, quote, the, um, uh, some of the solar arrays on, on the ISS kind of sort of look like, quote, a, a Texas uh, stop sign, close quote, with all kinds of pitted and, and all of that. So uh, Mike Suffredini and I'm sure Bill Gerstenmeier would like to sit down and, and kind of sort of like make their shopping list for things that you're going to need to replace on board ISS uh, if we're going to go ahead and continue to support the vehicle past 2020. But um, one of the things that were written in this, and I'll, I'm going to just quote the passage here real fast, quote, and this is from the, the Joel Arschenbach article here, quote, so even if the station's life is extended beyond 2020, it's coming down eventually. NASA could try to salvage a piece here and there, but that but there are no plans to deconstruct it currently. Uh, so the controlled deorbit will be a spectacular, fiery event, too big to burn up completely. The station will crash somewhere in the open water of the South Pacific. It will be perhaps the most expensive man-made object that humans have ever been you know, intentionally destroyed. Uh, this vision of the future will sink to the bottom of the sea, ending another chapter of in the history of what people used to call the space age. How pessimistic is that? Um, he also goes on to, to kind of sort of say about the station, he's trying to sort of, in my opinion, kind of characterize it already as sort of, you know, barely working. Um, the, uh, uh, he says, you know, in theory, equipment on board the ISS has got its own storage space, but that's really not how the place looks like in real life. They're, Laptop computers out everywhere, you know, tools Velcroed to the walls. It's cluttered. Um, and it says new crews have to famously go on treasure hunts to find things that have completely vanished. And then he makes the, um, uh, the observation that uh, uh, mundane problems such as clog filters and mold formation provide lessons for eventual human missions to Mars. And he does say this. But uh, he talks also about uh, the, the the mysterious problems that they do have, which is, you know, air filters clogging, um, you know, mold growing in corners and crannies, mysterious discs of zinc oxide that stop up the water lines and have to be, you know, kind of sort of flushed out and so on. Kind of characterizes the place as kind of sort of barely working already, and and I think that that's really really unfair. ISS is going to go ahead and give us the tools to to try to see what a large vehicle on its way to a uh, another world say or even a a temporary quarters on mars what is it going to how are you going to go ahead and maintain that ditto if we decide to go back to the moon um and 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 you know, establish sort of a McMurdo like base there for for ge- geological purposes and for scientific research. Uh, it, this facility is laying down the 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 tools that we're going to need to maintain you know facilities in far flung areas, and I think it's it, it's important. Now, whether or not we maintain. ISS, you know, and it's not just NASA that has to make that decision. Again, as I pointed out, it's the international partners that may have something to say about this. You know, my thought is that Russia is going to be completely gung ho, full steam ahead. I mean, they're sending another module 
uh, up uh, in the not too distant future to uh, to replace Piers. I think uh, that that's one that, that that's, that's 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 just point one. Uh, I'm not too sure about JAXA because of their issues. Uh, they've got some other things going on in, in the country right now, uh, specifically the, uh, uh, the radiation uh, leakage from uh, Fukushima. They're going to have their hands full trying to de- deal with that. And over at ESA, I get the feeling that, that ISS really isn't a priority in the program all that much. They've got some other things cooking right now. And as far as ISS is concerned, it, the priorities might be kind of, you know, below ExoMars, say, you know. So I, 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 I don't know what, what, what's, what's going on with that. I'd like to go ahead and talk to somebody in, at ESA to, to, to try to find out w- w- what their thoughts are as far as getting ISS going. But um, this, this gentleman I thought was really, really off base. Um, with the article, and oddly enough, I had had some strange bedfellows on this one, and uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this one too. And I'll 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 throw that one out there for for uh, the team here to chew on, but I'm also going to throw out there uh, for you guys to chew on as far as the future worth of ISS. So if you want to go ahead and shoot us a a note at uh, mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, I'd appreciate it and hear and uh, hearing from you folks. So definitely a couple things that we want to hear from you on. Uh, you know my opinions on the ISS. You know I like it and obviously want to keep it going as long as possible because any science is good science. But definitely let us know your thoughts. And thank you very much, Gene. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. It was a fun night. Just a real quick, you know, one more thing. Um, I was hanging out with a group of... Uh, uh, folks, uh, over the weekend in in New York, we uh, kind of it, it turned into s- sort of space tweep heaven, if you will. And uh, a shout out to one of them, uh, Kristen Fitz, who is who kind of sort of dragged me kicking and screaming into this. And she showed me her iPod real fast, and she, uh, I'm sorry, her her iPhone very very quickly, and she only had two podcasts on it. We were one of them, so a huge shout out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Always great to have shout outs, and thank you as well, Mark Radman. See you next time. Yes, we hope you will join us next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.